Our New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right, his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in, the age, in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's keep that passage of God's word open in front of us as we bow our heads in prayer. So Father, our prayer this morning is that you would enlighten our hearts so that we might understand more of our hope and of the power which you have given us in your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Truman Show is a 1998 American psychological satirical comedy directed by the director Peter Weir. It stars Jim Carrey, who plays Truman Burbank, the main character who, unknown to him, was selected from birth following an unwanted pregnancy. He's placed in an unreal world. He lives in his hometown of Seahaven Island, but what he doesn't realize is that everything around him is fake. He lives under a giant set, under a dome, populated by crew members and actors. Their whole mission is to prevent him from discovering the real reality that lies beyond the sets. So the director, Christoph, manufactures a range of different scenarios to dissuade Truman from finding out reality. The fictitious news of his father's death at sea in a storm is designed to inculcate a fear of the sea so he doesn't want to go beyond it. And then they broadcast constant news of the dangers of traveling to ensure that he stays put. But various clues arouse his suspicion. There's a moment when a light falls from the sky. He finds that a strange reality. And then he hears his name on the radio as he hears something of the director speaking about how his life is to be manipulated amongst the crew. But to cut a long story short, eventually he realizes that all is not as it seems. And he manages to break through the set's wall and escape from his fake reality to the real reality of life beyond the sets. Because in so many ways, the fate of Truman stands 
as the storyline of the Christian. We live in the set of this world. All around us, everything seems so real and immediate. The school run, the struggle with diabetes, financial hardship, the stuff of this life. But beyond the sets of this life lies a hidden reality, which is the dominant reality. And that's what Paul told us about last week. As he took us on the panoramic view from eternity past, because if you're Christian, you have been predestined. Through to eternity now that you have been adopted as the children of God, all the way forward to eternity future, because we will inherit the universe with Jesus. And to be a mature, secure, stable Christian, it means then to be held in a vice-like grip between these two great realities of predestination in the past, of inheritance in the future as we hold ourselves or as we are held between those two great realities. That's the key. Yet 93 million adults in the United States are at risk of serious vision loss. It's estimated that by 2050, vision loss in America will cost the economy $373 billion. But it's about vision loss that the Apostle Paul is warning us this morning. Because like Truman, we're caught in the set of the now, but we don't see the realities of eternity. We are spiritually myopic. We are spiritually short-sighted with spiritual cataracts. Our vision is seriously impaired. So this morning as we open up this text, it's as if we're with the eye doctor, the Apostle Paul. And he's here to correct our vision, to break us out of the set of this life, the box marked now that we might only see. And there are two great realities that he wants us to see. First, hope for the future. And second, power for the now. And in verse 18 comes the prayer. As Paul prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. The heart in the Bible means the very core of our being. It is the seat of decisions and of affections. More than the mind, it's the place where we make the decisions and form the affections of life. And Paul's prayer for us this morning is that our hearts, that your hearts would be enlightened. It's the Greek word for tito, from which we get the word photosynthesis or photograph. It literally means to give lights. But in the original Greek, this is a perfect passive participle which means that this giving of light has already happened. This then is not a prayer for second blessing or that we would receive something that we haven't yet got. Rather, it's a prayer that we would grasp what we already do have and that the gift of light, which we already possess, would enable us to see. 
The humbling truth is that we do not then come to know God's future by logical calculation or by entering an emotional high. We come to know these truths about the past and the future by revelation, verse 17. And the whole Trinity is involved in this, verse 17, as God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, does it through the Holy Spirit. This is a gift of the Father. It comes through the saving death of Jesus at Calvary as the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus and opens our minds. God is praying that we will know him. It's the polar opposite of Islam. In Islam, in the Quran, is the doctrine of al-jihab, which is that God is both unseen and unknowable. So a relationship with Allah is impossible. He is transcendent. He is distant and unknowable. But the privilege of the Christian life and the joy of the gospel is that God has made himself known. And in verses 15 to 23, in the original Greek, this is one sentence, one prayer. It is massive. The prayer is revolutionary. If we pray this, our lives will never be the same again. It's a prayer for two things. First, that we will know the hope. And second, that we will know the power. Two things everybody wants in life. Hope for the future and power for the now. First then, hope for the future. As Paul prays that we would know the hope of his calling. What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we use that word hope in a tentative way. So, will the Phillies win? Well, I, I hope so. Will you get promotion at work? Well, I, I hope so. Will she say yes when you propose? Well, I hope so. But the word hope in the Bible is a banker. It's a guaranteed certs. And the reason it's a cert is because the hope of verse 18 is to do with the calling. Again, that word is uncertain in our culture, so I call for a pizza, but there's no guarantee it's going to arrive. Or I call the kids down, and there's no guarantee they will necessarily obey on time. But in the Bible, the call of God is always effective. It really means his summons. So when God calls Abraham, he comes, and when God calls Moses, he obeys, and when God calls Israel, the nation is formed. So the prayer of Paul is that we would know the certainty of our hope, which is structurally undergirded by the call of God, which we saw last week is to do with his choosing of us and predestining of us for glory. A prayer that we will know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now we read that and we assume that what Paul is talking about in verse 18 is our inheritance of God. But it's actually the other way around. Because in the Old Testament there are 38 times when God speaks of his people as his inheritance. In Deuteronomy 4, the Lord has taken you and brought you forth 
out from the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be to him a people of inheritance as you are this day. In Psalm 28, save your people and bless your inheritance. In Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. And in Deuteronomy 32, in a desert land he formed him, in a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him and guarded him as the apple of his eye. Well, if you ever make it to London, you must go to the Tower of London. It's a must-see for every possible tourist or visitor. Inside the keep of the Tower of London, you will find 23,578 precious gems. They form part of what's called the Royal Collection with an estimated stunning worth of $5.8 billion. At May this year, when Charles becomes king and is crowned at Westminster Abbey, he will inherit the Royal Collection he will be given the imperial state crown and will inherit the royal estates of Windsor and Sandringham and Balmoral, together with the vast inheritance of the land estates, the Duchy of Lancaster and the Duchy of Cornwall, worth a staggering $18 billion. But as Christians, we are the crown jewels of God's. Look around you, right now. And what you're looking at doesn't look particularly special, does it? The lady struggling with diabetes, that person in front of you struggling with cancer, hair falling out, battling weight gain, depression, temptation and sin. If the onlooker was to drive past as we walked out of church this morning, there's nothing special to see. Move on. Nothing to see at all. But don't miss it spiritually speaking. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, we are his precious inheritance. He treasures you. We are his precious children, his glorious inheritance. For the inheritance of God isn't gold or silver or the palaces of heaven. It is his precious children. It is his glorious family. It is his body, the church. For he has redeemed you and he delights in you. He celebrates you and he loves you with his whole heart and mind and joy. And in the new creation, as we're given new physical bodies to occupy a new physical place, the glory of that inheritance will be seen as we are delivered from sin to reflect the likeness of Jesus, a perfect people occupying a perfect world forever in glory. But how often do you think about this? I mean, when did you last give thought to this? When did it last occur to us that we are the crown jewels of God? 
When did you last look in the mirror and think to yourself, I am the precious inheritance of Jesus? And on the day when he returns, he will inherit me in perfection and glory. There's a second side then to our sight test as to how well we see. Not just how often do we think about the glory, but actually how often do we think about the problems of this world? When you look in the mirror or think about your calendar or your week, what is it that we talk about? Is it the misery of this life and the problems at work or in my family or even the problems here at church? Do we, do we grumble and complain, rather like the Israelites in the deserts? Do we grumble about what's going on in life, or do we fix our eyes on the land of rest flowing with milk and honey? D.A. Carson puts it like this, in our generation that reflects too little on the future and almost never on eternity, it is distressingly obvious that we need help, help from God, that we may be able to know the hope to which we have been called. Only then will we become more interested in living with eternity's values constantly before our eyes. But why is it we don't see? Why is it that we don't see the future that God has given us why is it that we have these spiritual cataracts and suffer from spiritual glaucoma and spiritual myopia? And in the book that we've been asked to read that I really want to encourage you to read by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, his diagnosis is disturbing. It's this. We don't really want to see eternity clearly because if we were to see high-definition future glory, it would have to lead to high-resolution Christian discipleship. If we see the kingdom of Jesus in all of its glory, high-definition, it's going to have to lead to a high-resolution Christian discipleship which is going to have to involve revolutionary change and perhaps a change that disturbs me or unsettles me. So Lloyd-Jones writes this, these people who sort of half see the kingdom of gods, these people object to clear-cut definitions. They reject clarity and certainty for the most comfortable type of religion is vague religion, for there is nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truth that demands decision. If he's right, as I suspect he is, then this myopia is a self-imposed problem. I don't, if I'm honest, really want to see the kingdom and the future of glory and the lordship of Jesus in high resolution because high resolution kingdom glory vision will have to lead me to high definition Christian discipleship. 
And rather like that uh, disturbing and sad little figure, Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, invited with Gandalf to head off on the adventure, he would rather sit in his hobbit hole, comfortable by the fire and smoking his pipe in his slippers. We don't want the adventure of the kingdom, and so we cuddle up and snuggle up in our hobbit holes, in our spiritual slippers and smoking our spiritual pipe. But no, Gandalf insists we must venture on, on the venture and adventure of faith. And it's like that for us, isn't it? Because Paul prays that we would see the future of glory. And if God was to give us that wonderful reality, it would empower us for the drama and adventure of costly Christian living. There's the first prayer from Paul. Pray that you would know the glory of your hope. There's a second side to it, though, and it emerges in verse 19. As Paul now says, pray that you would know the might of God's power. Verse 19, I pray, says Paul, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Surely one of the saddest moments in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress comes as Christian meets the man in the iron cage. If you know the story, the picture is bleak. He looks sad and his eyes are down towards the ground. His hands are folded as he sighs in despair. This man in a darkened cage. But what is so extraordinary is that the door to the cage is open. And this man is trapped in the cage for he chooses to be. The cage represents the despair of the soul. Bunyan describes the room as very dark, but all the other rooms in the house are lighted by a candle that symbolizes the illumination of the spirit and of the power of the gospel that enables us to live the Christian life and reach heaven. But in this room, there's an ominous darkness suggesting a lack of the illumination of the spirit. Here is a man who doesn't have any spiritual understanding. He's trapped by himself. He can't see because he won't see. There's a way out of the cage. The door is open, yet he despairs, discouraged, depressed, defeated. Are you like that this morning? Discouraged, depressed, defeated. But it's a self-imposed discouragement, a self-imposed depression, a self-imposed defeat. Because you can leave the darkness of the cage for the light of the Spirit and the power of God. And Paul really wants us to see this today. And in verse 19, as he takes us from the hope of the future to the power of God, he exhausts the Greek language by piling word after word after word on top 
of each other as he four times says to us that there is power available to us of the most extraordinary and impossible kinds. He wants us to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. The Greek word that Paul uses for immeasurable is hyperbalo, which is a two-parts Greek words. Hyper, meaning above or beyond or more than, and balo, meaning to throw or to cast. So this power is literally an over and beyond throwing or a surpassing. This word came over time to express excessiveness, like an outbidding at an auction or the extreme heat from in a fire, or the intense brightness of the sun. This word was used in the Greek to speak of something that stands out, which exceeds the norm, <clears throat> which goes far beyond the standards. And the word for power that he uses is the word from which we get our word dynamites. So Paul is praying that we might know the exceptional exceeding, over and above, power of God's. It's unlike anything else on planet Earth. So we bought one of the children a helicopter this Christmas, and we have to sit as the helicopter sort of hovers and then descends. I think the challenge is, let's see if we can get it onto Dad's heads. At least that was the challenge just this last week. And it sort of hovers right in front of your eyes. Um, the only comfort is that it lasts 20 minutes and then it needs a new battery charge. <laughs> and then it's taken away as I'm delivered from the horror and terror of this thing that hovers in front of my face. Well, is the power of God like that? Does it need to be constantly plugged in? Do we need to, as it were, find more power as we're topped up, as the iPhone runs low? No, we have the power of God's. Not any old power, not a power that will ever run out and over and above, highly excessive, never exhausting, never running low power within us. And Paul says that this power that we have within the church and within our hearts is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to heaven. Verse 19, this power is in accordance with the working of the strength of his mights. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and Every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Verse 22, putting all things in subjection under his feet. This power of God was the power of God that, like a bulldozer, smashed through the pain barrier of death as Jesus emerged from the grave triumphants. This power of God is like the wrecking ball that destroys the power of Satan as the Jesus who lay dead is raised to glory and 
seated in the heavenly realms above all authority and power over the demons and Satan and death. The picture here is of Psalm 110 as the victorious Jesus, the cosmic victor Christ, is raised from the grave and seated in eternal glory. We then ought to have no fear in the Christian life, and I wonder what you do fear. It's very easy, isn't it, to fear sin or the devil. Perhaps we fear our own temptations. Perhaps we fear financial ruin or homelessness, or we fear disease and pain. Maybe we fear the culture turning against us. We fear for our children living within it. Or maybe you suffer from the terror of the grave. You go to a funeral and you stand there and you say, it terrifies me the thoughts of being lowered six feet below the grounds. The future beyond the grave terrifies me. Paul is assuring us He's wanting us to see clearly that not only do we have the hope of glory through the shed blood of Jesus who's taken our sin because he chose us before the beginning of eternity, but also we have the power of God. And the power of God isn't out there to be accessed. It's in here. The power of the resurrection is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the hospice then visit that 99-year-old, there's nothing much to see, is there? Her joints unmovable with the arthritis, the mind all gone to Alzheimer's, the muscles deteriorating to Parkinson's. But if she's a Christian, you're not looking at defeat, but victory through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ as she sits there in that wheelchair. You're not looking at defeat, but victory. For at the very moment of death, she will open her eyes to triumph and glory. For the hope of glory and the power of God is hers through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jamel Melville isn't a name that you'll necessarily know. But he pounded the streets of Manhattan for three exhausting hours in the 2021 marathon, having completed 26 miles just about. And within just a couple of meters of the finish line, he collapsed. 200 meters away from the finish line, he collapsed. What actually happened next was extraordinary, as various other runners picked him up and physically manhandled him over the line. He had pounded the streets of Queens. He'd cleared all the way through Manhattan and the Bronx. But it was just that last moment, those last two to 300 meters that he couldn't quite make. And we watched in awe as he was physically held and lifted and carried over the finishing line by a power an energy external to himself. And if we feel weak and defeated, like weather-vane disciples, if you're Christian, trust Christ, for it is his power that carries us through the hope we have 
and the power he gives us through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what strikes me as somewhat strange in this prayer. And this is something of a rebuke, I guess, to us. There's nothing in this prayer for a change of circumstance to our lives. Yet virtually all of my prayers are about a change in the circumstances of life. We pray for better care at work or more money to live on or deliverance from disease. By the way, those are great prayers and it's not wrong to pray them. But Paul is not praying for a change in our circumstances. He's praying for a change in our hearts. Ah, you say, well, that's the ivory towered apostle for you, so disconnected from any real life or suffering. But no, for as he writes, he's in Rome, chained in his first imprisonment, AD 60, 62. He's chained in prison, but he's not asking for release. His prayer, chained, is that his heart will see, and our hearts too, as it soars in glory. How then do we access this extraordinary hope? And how then do we access this extraordinary power? In a few weeks' time, we'll see in chapter 6, we put it on. It's the gospel armor. The gospel is how we access it as we meditate on the gospel, but we do that in prayer. Each piece put on in prayer. As we prayerfully think about the gospel, as we prayerfully say to God, oh God, help me to see the hope and understand and appropriate the power, we grow in stability and security and joy. So here's a challenge for you as I finish. Will you pray this prayer of Paul's every, every day for yourself this month? Will you pray like this for your kids and for your spouse? Will you pray like this for the people in your small group? And will you pray like this for our church? What might happen, do you think, if every day we pray and grasp our hope? And what would happen if every day we grasped the power of God for us? But there's a health warning because this is a revolutionary prayer. If you dare to pray like this, that God would show you the hope, high resolution, and God would enable you to access this power, this high resolution vision will lead to high definition discipleship. It's going to change everything, which really boils down then to the question of whether we want to see like that or not, or whether like Truman, we prefer the sets of this life with its comforts, or whether like that man in the iron cage, we actually prefer the darkness to the light of the spirits in our hearts. Well, let's pray as we sit. Father, we are sorry when so often we have lived like Truman, self-deceived, myopic, 
And when Father, like that man in the iron cage, conscious that the door is open, we've not wanted the lights, change our hearts, that we might know the glory of our hope and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ within us. Change us and enable us because we ask it for Jesus' namesake and for his glory. Amen.